Hello everyone, thanks for tuning in today. I would like to share one quick announcement with you. I will be in downtown Nashville November 4th to the 6th for the Distributed Health Conference, which aims to bridge the gaps between blockchain technologists and the healthcare industry. So for any of you listeners who are also going to be there, please reach out to me on my LinkedIn account. I hope to see you there. And now keeping on the conference theme... In this episode, I speak with Helen Disney, the CEO and founder of Unblocked Events, which is a hub for blockchain events, education, and information. Helen worked on outreach at the Bitcoin Foundation. She ran the Stockholm Network Think Tank for 15 years, connecting thought leaders and policy experts to create best practices in public policy. She's a regular conference speaker, writer, and commentator on blockchain technology and how it applies to various businesses and organizations. I really enjoyed getting to know her story and learn more about her experience as a storyteller, event organizer, and blockchain evangelist. She's been featured in The Economist, The Times, ICO Crowd Magazine, and The Fintech Times. She was recently appointed as an advisor for policy, governance, and public affairs at the British Blockchain Association. And she's also a member of Tech UK and its Distributed Ledger Technology Working Group. We talk about how blockchain policy can impact healthcare. And we also go over some of the topics that will be included in her upcoming conference, Healthcare Unblocked, on November 9th, which will be in London. Remember to follow Health Unchained on Twitter and Instagram. Join our Telegram community where we regularly have lively discussions about current events and projects. I welcome questions, feedback, and guest recommendations from my listeners. I've had great feedback so far and just want to thank everyone who supported me on this journey. Also, check out the episode show notes as usual to find out more information and links about this episode. Now let's get to it, folks. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Welcome, everyone, to Health Unchained. Today, we have a special episode with Helen Disney. Helen, thanks for joining. Can you give us a little bit of a background of why you started Unblocked Events, what that is, and then kind of go into why you got into blockchain? Well, thanks so much for having me, Ray. And uh, yes, it's always great to tell the story of Unblocked because it's a company that came about really through my desire to communicate what blockchain was to people who are non-technical, to a lot of the people who I spoke to when I started getting interested in cryptocurrency who kept saying to me, well, you know, what is Bitcoin? What is blockchain? Don't understand how it relates to me. I don't understand how it relates to the kind of things that I do. Um, and, you know, they had a lot of myths or misunderstandings about the technology. So two years ago, I decided to found the company as an events and education platform about blockchain. Um, but with a slightly different twist, which is that we tend to do events that focus on different themes or different verticals. So we go into a particular subject, like in this case, we're talking about healthcare, and we do events like Healthcare Unblocked, where we try and study and explain, first of all, what types of companies are building, um, 
products and services in uh, the healthcare arena with blockchain, but also how it might disrupt or um, create innovation in existing business models that exist already in the marketplace today. And just for our audience to know, what other types of t themes do you cover? Uh, so up to now, we've covered things like also the energy market and the environmental impact of blockchains. We've looked at the creative industries, so things like how is blockchain or DLT impacting on the music business or the film industry, uh, content creators more broadly, how they can potentially use blockchain to protect their intellectual property and monetize their content. Um, and also at humanitarian causes, so how is blockchain impacting on philanthropy and charitable giving and how could it help to raise money for good causes or even maybe implement humanitarian projects more effectively. So when starting out, you know, this whole revolution, what interested you most about blockchain technology? So it's a really interesting journey because I got involved in this initially about four or five years ago. I was asked to work on a big Bitcoin event in Amsterdam in 2014 and at that time, you know, I knew nothing about the technology. I'd sort of read a couple of articles about Bitcoin, but I wasn't really familiar with the whole thing. And it was very new to me. And I was just intrigued and curious about what it was. So I came to it completely kind of cold um, and also not with a developer background or a financial background. So for a lot of people in the industry, they've come from traditional banking and decided to move into fintech financial technology or they've come, you know, as a programmer, got interested in, in building something with the tech. But for me, I was sort of a an ordinary Joe, if you like, just a man or woman on the street who, who got interested. Um, and actually, the first thing that got me interested was the fact that um, you had this peer-to-peer -peer payment. So maybe you could do things like increase financial inclusion in developing countries by getting money to people who currently are not able to get out of poverty because they don't have access to be able to save or to have a bank account. Um, and also in payments around the media, because having worked as a journalist myself in the past, um, I was worried about the inability of the media to continue to raise revenue in an online world. And I saw that maybe the potential of blockchain could allow or cryptocurrencies could allow for micro payments for, for media and content, um, which is something that's been very difficult to do in the past because you had high credit card charges and it just wasn't really possible to, to kind of pay for individual pieces of content. So those are the things that kind of hooked me in initially. And then I started to read more and more and see that there was all this other kind of applied side of blockchain if you like outside of what most people associate with cryptocurrencies kind of money and payments being able to send money directly online from one person to another but actually if you have that structure of a distributed ledger so a sort of shared database that everyone can see at the same time that maybe you can actually use that also as some kind of a data structure for sharing things like healthcare information or um, other types of information about supply chain management or different parts of the the healthcare industry, which is something I'd worked on for about 15 years in the public policy world before I got involved in blockchain. Right. You had written a book back in 2004, one of the authors of a book, Impatient for Change, European Attitudes. Yeah, you've done your research. Healthcare <laughs> reform. So, and, you know, you actually wrote two books. The other one's Pulls Apart, Eastern European Attitudes to Healthcare Reform. So you've been mm. in the healthcare space for many years. Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what those books were about? Obviously, at the time, Bitcoin didn't exist. Maybe there was yeah. some talk about distributed computing, but not on the surface. Many people weren't really aware of those uh, kinds yeah. of technologies. But it's really interesting that you bring that up because actually those two books were the results of um, a kind of research project that I did when I, I ran a think tank. Uh, and what we did was polled patients in many different countries. So the first book, Impatient for Change, polled about eight different countries, if I remember rightly, around Europe um, and asked 
the public about their opinions about healthcare systems and what was wrong with them. Um, and then the second book, Poles Apart, was following up doing a, a kind of wider study on uh, some of the what at the time were the new EU member states in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. Um, and what we found from that was this whole idea of, of impatience for change. So patients in the past have had to be patients who they've had to kind of be passive recipients of care. Um, and what was actually happening was that healthcare system reform wasn't really keeping pace with consumer um, feelings and consumer demand or, you know, the sense that the patient was very passive in the system. So we were trying to look at how, first of all, healthcare systems could be modernised to make them more like the rest of the, the economy in the sense that in other worlds that we deal in, in the sort of consumer world, you know, we can in one click have what we want. We can go on Amazon buy a book. We can do a lot of transactions very frictionlessly and easily and be more in control of how we spend our money and what we get in return and the feedback that we're able to give when we're not happy. But in healthcare, quite often, it's hard for the patient to have agency. So it's hard for them to actually sort of influence their own care because it tends to be provided to them. Um, not influenced by them and also it's sometimes hard certainly um, in the UK where I live where we have a, a kind of more centralized healthcare system the NHS for the patient to really um, always you know have access to all the services that they want because it's it's decided by somebody else so um, right. that was kind of the the ideas that we were teasing out and obviously there are structural problems in healthcare systems around the world as well to do with our aging populations um, and the cost of healthcare. And so a lot of these things haven't gone away. In fact, they've just got worse. Since, do you think they've uh, gotten worse? Do, you do think I think they worse. have. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think really um, there hasn't been much modernization of healthcare systems in terms of um, innovation in the way we run things. Hospitals haven't really changed enormously since the Second World War. Um, sure. I would and, uh, agree with you that, you know, there's, um, you know, the processes are basically the same, but I think that, you know, in my opinion, we were doing a better job collecting some of the information inside of electronic medical records. Uh, I know it's not perfect and the software yeah. is not very user friendly, but 14 years later, I would imagine there'd be some progress. Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at science, clearly there's been progress in terms of the development of new medicines and treatments from the pharmaceutical side. So we've advanced some of the science around how we actually treat people. I mean, cancer care has come a long way, for example. Um, and certainly in certain countries, yes, I mean, we don't um, so much have electronic medical records over here in the same way that you do. But um, there have been some advances in how we kind of gather data and so on. But Many, many of the of the sort of structural issues are still there. So we still have uh, long waiting times to get information. Test results get lost. We have very paper-based systems, old-fashioned systems, old-fashioned technology in hospitals. Um, and just the ability really to really fully involve the patient in how the care is given, I think, is still lagging behind other industries. So um, I still feel that patients don't really have... Um, enough control over their care. I mean, for example, we don't own our own medical record. We're not able to decide what happens to the data and those kind of things. Right. I agree. I think if you compare to other industries, we still have a long way to go to kind of um, be on par with, you know, how other consumers um, interact with the healthcare industry. Um, you mentioned that, you know, it's very different in the way we have it here in the States. So, you know, you're in the UK, right? Mm -hmm. And how would you say that it is different? the way we interact with EMRs or whatever you're referring to? So, I mean, here, 
Uh, unfortunately, we're still, I think, in a situation where a lot of things are done in a paper-based way. The UK has tried to move towards um, kind of updating its systems, but we had a lot of um, historical problems with implementing IT systems in the NHS. We had this whole proposal for so-called spine in the NHS, which would be the kind of um, IT structure that would sort of gather together all the information. And I think because you're dealing with a very, very centralised system, which is essentially um, really not one organisation, it's many, many different organisations all gathered under a single umbrella brand of the NHS, but you've got lots of separate parts. And yet at the same time, they're all dependent on kind of a, to some extent, political centralised system um, for decision making and funding. Um, it's just very, very hard to actually implement um, new technologies. And I think we are evolving. So... Uh, we have NHS Digital now, which is a body that's de dedicated to implementing, you know, new technologies in the NHS and trying to incubate projects. And we do already have some pilot um, projects going on with blockchain in the NHS, very early stage, most of them. But, you know, some things are starting to change. Uh, but for the average patient, you know, they go to their family doctor um, and there's still a lot of kind of paper based systems um, and things done with post-it notes and all kinds of stuff. So, um <laughs> You know, I guess the whole system works differently. You've got a more insurance-based system, and we have a more um, single-payer system. So the whole kind of setup is is different in general. Right, uh, absolutely. And I kind of want to talk a little bit about the upcoming event you have going for the Healthcare Unblocked um, in on November 9th, Actually, I just kind of wanted to read some of the topics, if you don't mind, just mm -hmm. so the audience can sure. kind of get an idea of what's going to be occurring at that event. So we have. A topic, can blockchain help save costs and reform the NHS? Mm -hmm. Also, you have building a decentralized healthcare identity. Digital service records, analytics, and actionable insights for medical devices and equipment. The disrupting convergence of blockchain, AI, and healthcare. I, I like that one a lot. Preventative medicine and longevity. What role can blockchain play? And what are the new business models being enabled by the rise of tokenization? So a lot of different topics here, all revolving around blockchain. You know, this is obviously an important topic around the world. There have been many events, conferences, discussions about this topic. How do you envision that event playing out? Well, it's amazing in a way because, you know, when you read the themes out to me, and I obviously I decided the themes, but you could almost spend a whole day on each of those topics. And unfortunately, we don't have a whole day for each of those topics because there are many kind of business issues, policy and regulatory issues, sort of ethical issues when it comes to things like blockchain and AI that come out of all those topics. Um, and that's why I find this subject so fascinating because there are many different parts to it. Um, I think if I had to sort of try and find a common theme between them, a lot of it is down to kind of how we know what's going on within our systems and how we manage the data that comes from that. Um, so if we look at something like Let's start from the beginning of drug discovery. You know, we have a lot of information coming into healthcare systems. It might be new kind of genomic data. It might be data from wearables. It might be, you know, if people are going to have their own healthcare records and they're going to kind of give feedback on their um, condition. Let's say they've got diabetes and they have a, a diabetes wallet and they, they're able to provide information on their blood sugar. We're going to have a lot of different metrics and, and data that comes from uh, new technologies and one thing that maybe blockchain could help us do or distributed ledgers could help us do is is try to find a way to sort of structure and not necessarily we wouldn't be storing all that data on a blockchain but we would maybe be using the system like a kind of reference library to to find the data that we want and to help us 
organize it and obviously that's not just blockchain but other technologies that could help us um do that machine learning and ai and so on could maybe help us to um analyze data in different ways and see patterns and interesting things emerging that could help us develop new drugs or could just help us to treat people better because we would have a better idea of what's going on um and I think, you know, most healthcare systems are very, very complex. If you, Even if you just look at how one hospital alone operates, they've got a huge number of different, you know, business management processes going on, care patterns, different people working in the system with different roles. So it's a very, very complicated thing to organise. And at the moment, the way we do it, you know, if you go in a hospital, you still see a whiteboard with things written in pen and people kind of wipe them off and cross them out because that's just a very quick way of handling information when you're dealing with emergencies. But, you know, as, as time goes on, we have to somehow keep track of all of that. So I think that the data management probably cuts across all those different themes of health system reform, drug discovery, supply chain. It's, it's kind of having this giant sort of shared diary of our medical kind of chronology, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that, that diary, knowing that we can all kind of see the diary and see at the same time what's happening prevents these kind of time lags um, or loss of data or mismanagement of data that can cause a lot of human suffering, um, which could be something as simple as your test results get lost and you have to do them again. And that's annoying and frustrating, but it's also costly. And it means that maybe you won't get the best treatment or maybe you'll even die because you didn't get, you know, the information in a timely manner. So, um, you know, there could be all kinds of human consequences to those system failures. Yeah, most recently I actually heard an analogy for blockchain, you know, there's so many, but the one that I heard was that blockchain is similar to a group chat. You know, everyone's involved, mm -hmm. everyone can see it, and um, everyone has a record of it. So anytime there is an addition of data or a transaction that's made on the blockchain, everyone is aware of it. So I thought that was a really simple way to mm -hmm. explain what blockchain yeah, is. Yeah, and I think, you know, you have a lot of bilateral relationships um so you know it might be the patient to the family doctor but then it might also be the family doctor to the specialist or it might be the specialist then back to the patient um or it might be the specialist to the scientific researcher who's then analyzing the data from a particular illness or condition let's say rare cancer um so all of those kind of one-to-one -one relationships are important but maybe at times it's also important for all those people to be able to see something together um, and that's what we're really not able to do now with existing kind of healthcare IT systems. We're not really able to kind of do that real time shared data in a way that works and is secure. Right. And I think about, um, you know, another problem or another issue that's ha arising in the healthcare industry is the aging population and how not that they're a problem, but how we handle and manage their care. And I think that providing more information to the caregivers of the of these individuals will help allowing them to have more up-to-date information on their health their status um, alongside with their doctor that'll improve the way that they are treated and improve the, their overall health I think yeah I mean there was some interesting examples that were given to me about how this could be helpful let's say you're a relative of an elderly patient you know your, your mother or father is in hospital and this happens to a lot of people um, and you want to know what's going on with their care um, and they may be a bit confused or they don't, you know, it's just not good at giving you the information, but you live far away. You know, if you were given permission by your parents or, or by the physician, if your parent wasn't able to, to give their own permission, but they previously said, if I'm ill, I'm happy for my son or daughter to have the information, you know, you'd be able to access their medical records in real time and see what's going on so that you're able to better care for your relative and know whether you need to you know, get in a car and drive down the road or whether you need to, to provide some additional support in some way. 
Um, so those kind of things, you know, prevent a lot of stress and, and upset from a relative's perspective. When somebody is ill, one of the most stressful things is not really knowing what's going on and not being able to be there all the time to see what's happening. Uh, or equally, just basic things like sometimes you're in hospital, you're not allowed to use a mobile phone. So how can you communicate with your relative? You know, maybe or maybe the, the relative doesn't have a lot of money. So maybe you can use a cryptocurrency to charge up a, a phone card so that that person can call you. Um, so there could be a lot of kind of practical examples, which are very simple and seem very, um, you know, basic in a way. But actually, they would make people's day to day lives much, much better and improve their quality of care. You were involved with the Bitcoin Foundation, the Distributed Ledger Foundation. You've helped set up many events. What are some of the obstacles you face when organizing conference events? Um, uh, I think the kind of Bitcoin and blockchain events world is maybe a little bit different to the average kind of conference. Um, when I first started organizing events, it was more in the policy world. Um, and you tend to plan things, you know, reasonably far in advance and, you know, you just have a sort of certain structure for how you do it. I think everything moves very, very quickly in, in the technology world, and especially in cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And one of the reasons it's so exciting is things are constantly, constantly changing and there's always news, which makes it great for people like you who are doing journalistic work. Um, so they tend to be very um, roller coaster type of events where everything sort of gets agreed and, and kind of organized in the last three or four weeks before the event. So you have to be kind of quite um thick skinned in a way to, to organize these events because they do tend to take on a certain pattern i mean just with the, the event we did in amsterdam it would sort of um you know the last few weeks before the event um we had a venue for a thousand people you know and people didn't start kind of buying tickets till about three weeks before you know so you have to really hold your nerve i think a lot of the time with these events because people are so busy building startups and building their companies or trying to raise investment that they often don't decide to do things till very near the time so that's one thing um i think also the challenge is bringing different types of people together because what i'm trying to do with my events is bring people from if you like mainstream companies like maybe existing pharmaceutical businesses and life science companies or health insurance companies or digital health organizations or patient groups or people in public life together with um you know, some cutting edge technology that they may not really understand or know much about. So first of all, they're asking, well, why should I come to the event? I'm not sure it's got anything to do with me. I'm not sure it's relevant to what I do. So you have to sort of educate people before they come. Um, and then also from, you know, the side of the, the startups, you know, there's many, many events now. When I started, there weren't so many events, but now there are many, many blockchain events. So, you know, it's good to have a niche. And I think for us being in this space of trying to go into the verticals and look at the different aspects within healthcare, um, which I mentioned, as you read out the agenda, there are many different parts to it, um, you know, from the drug discovery through to the kind of supply chain issues and safety through to kind of data healthcare management, um, through to system reform and how we can cut bureaucracy, you know, so there's so yeah. many things to cover. And it's just trying to, to match make people really find people with common interests and bring them together. That's that's what I'm doing it for. Right. And I think the the general like theme around blockchain overall is that there is a lot of transparency and sharing and people want to build their communities. Like this is a, actually more important than typical traditional companies. So I feel like mm. conferences and events and any kind of social gathering actually Im improves the way that we communicate and it helps people understand what's going on a little bit better. And it's not just a simple trade show, right? Um, yeah. You know, I think that's changing. the thing. There are, I mean, there are kind of now amazingly, you know, blockchain trade shows, if you like, which there weren't because it wasn't really 
an industry when I, I started doing this, it was still a very nascent technology. And now we're starting to develop to the point where there are, are many different types of blockchain or cryptocurrency companies and they're getting larger. Um, you know, we're getting some quite big companies now. But, um, you know, for me, these events are really about sharing ideas and, and also kind of storytelling a bit because sometimes technology can seem very dry. Um, and people might think, well, this is just any old other IT solution. You know, why is it any more interesting than cloud computing or any other kind of type of, you know, digital health tech innovation? Um, but I think the impact of blockchain is, is much bigger than that in terms of how it will impact on our society. So I'm very keen to try and use things like simulations and storytelling in the events and, and try and provide use cases and examples so that hopefully people go away with the sense of, I can see the human side of this and why it would really have an effect on me as a, an individual, just a member of society, but also in what I do in my day-to-day -day work. Yeah, absolutely. And I watched a few of your videos and the way you articulate how blockchain works, what it is, it's very uh, clear to the average person. And I think that's really important uh, at this time, especially when people are like, what's a Bitcoin kind of thing? And yeah. um, I, I think that yeah, you... Yeah, we're still at the stage of having to tell people, you know, from the beginning. And I think that that's good that people still want to ask the question and they sort of haven't got bored of the topic, you know, that a lot of people are still waking up to this for the first time. So I, I try to never assume that people know what this is and always start from the beginning and, you know, Often you find someone who's, you know, already read up a lot and is quite knowledgeable, but other times people just have the basic questions that, that we all asked right at the beginning when we first got to start to understand what, what Bitcoin was or what cryptocurrencies were. Mm -hmm. I read somewhere where at one point you were receiving Bitcoin in form of payment for your um, employment, and but you had to, you know, actually use it for paying expenses and bills, right? Mm. Um, I think that was in 2014. Yeah. Do you think we've reached a point where the adoption of Bitcoin or blockchain has been guaranteed or is it still kind of in the murky area? Would you still at this point, if you were you know, getting Bitcoin in form of payment, um, mm. would you still have to sell it? Would you save as much as possible because you think that the future growth of the price will be so high that it's not worth selling? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we've, we've now got this kind of expression hodl, which didn't exist back then. I don't think it was it was something that came along more recently. But, um, you know, people have always said you should hang on to Bitcoin. And I did actually hang on to some, but not all of the, the Bitcoin that I acquired at the time. But, um, you know, if you if you think about mainstream adoption, um, it's a great idea to be paid in Bitcoin for your salary. And, you know, that's part of, was part of the mission of the foundation was to spread, you know, understanding by actual use, you know, until you've used opened up a bitcoin wallet and actually used it you can't really fully understand how it works and no one really can with any technology you have to actually play with it in your hands if you like and kind of sure. get get a handle on it um but you know in those days and still probably now you can't pay your mortgage in bitcoin you can't pay your bills in bitcoin you know you can't go to many shops and you probably wouldn't want to because of the volatility of the currency i mean obviously now people are talking about things like stable coins but um, you know, you're not really going to want to go and buy a cup of coffee in, in a cafe and it ends up being the most expensive coffee you've ever bought. You know, I think I probably did that back in those days as well, you know, uh, and a lot of people gave away lots of bits of Bitcoin to just help people understand how it works. Um, so I think, you know, we're, we're still kind of not quite at the stage where the average person is going to um, be using cryptocurrency in their mainstream day to day activities. But I think that is changing. I think a lot of people who are involved in the tech are starting to use it more and more and try and avoid using traditional currencies and just spend as much of their life as they can in the cryptocurrency world or, or be paid in tokens for work that they're doing um, as a way of being compensated. So 
I think that will develop more and more. It's certainly advanced a lot in the last four years, but I don't think we're quite at the stage where, you know, suddenly Bitcoin is going to be the world currency. Ryan, this growth of all these companies that are blockchain companies, you know, many of them are at least in some form paying their employees with some tokens, um, potentially, you know, it's probably like a 50-50 mix of mm. fiat money and tokens. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Keeping on the theme of conferences, for this News Corner, I will list three other interesting events happening this year related to healthcare technology. The first one is the Beverly Hills Health IT Summit, which will be on November 8th to the 9th. And this is the final event for the Health IT Summit series, which is a partnership between renowned healthcare informatics and class enterprises where they offer exclusive education sessions to educators, providers, government officials, vendors, and consultants. Class conducts accurate, honest, and impartial research on healthcare software and services. The second is called Playing With Fire, an ONC developer workshop. This will take place on November 27th through to the 28th, and it'll be in Washington, D.C., Playing with Fire is an opportunity for health IT developers to take a deep dive into HL7 Fire, which is Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources Standard. At the event, Fire server resources and sample data will be available for participants to work on new ideas and applications. Additionally, testing tools will be available for applications that are more developed. The workshop seeks to catalyze new ideas and approaches to using Fire to solve interoperability issues. This workshop is a free event, and it's open to anyone who's interested in playing with fire. And who doesn't like playing with fire? The third event is called the Blockchain Health IT Summit. This will take place on December 5th through the 6th, and it will take place in San Diego, California. This summit will provide a full-spectrum viewpoint of blockchain-based technologies in the healthcare setting, and how disruptive technology will transform healthcare systems and delivery. The event will offer key insights on the future of blockchain business models in healthcare and how this disruptive technology will go on to innovate healthcare delivery for years to come. So I'm really excited about all these conferences and events. Uh, Unfortunately, I won't be able to attend all of them, but I encourage you all to at least check them out, learn more, and if you're in the area, uh, go ahead and attend some of these events. You can find links to all these events in the episode show notes. And now let's get back to our conversation with Helen Disney. Do you think developed countries will be late to adopt blockchain? Meaning, can developing countries leapfrog the business models of developed countries? Uh, I actually think that there's a really great opportunity in developing countries because, I mean, it's, it's not an original point, but when you don't have the existing infrastructure, it's actually easier to start with a blank slate. So. Right. You know, people have made this, this point many times before about mobile phones. You're not going to go and lay a whole landline telephone infrastructure when you can just go straight to a mobile phone. Um, and the same may be true for, you know, new types of healthcare systems being built in developing countries. You know, you have somewhere like China or India or other parts of the world where you've got a huge population in often really rural communities. And maybe actually there's a lot you can do by just giving people a phone um, and a lot of different 
apps or distributed apps, so-called dApps, you know, which would allow them to access maybe finance or information or services that um, as long as they've got an internet connection, they suddenly have infrastructure in their hand or in their pocket rather than having to have a big physical facility there. Um, so, I mean, just to give a, a concrete example, I, I am speaking to somebody who's worked on a project in kind of remote highlands of an island um, and a lot of the babies that are born there never get registered um, but they never sort of noted anywhere they don't have an ID um, because it's remote and because the parents wouldn't maybe be well educated or they wouldn't ever go to the places where they could actually register the birth um, and so the midwives were getting involved in actually documenting the birth of the children and using blockchain to verify the identity of the child um, so that that person can potentially get access to services in the future, but also so that the government or the you know the people living there know who is actually living on the island. Um, and so there are things like that where you can see enormous potential just in one small place. But if you extrapolate that and say, well, look, we don't have at the moment great knowledge about the healthcare information of people from many parts of the world. Our, our healthcare data is very skewed to Western countries. So in terms of scientific research, we don't have great information on conditions affecting many developing countries because we just haven't had the opportunity to gather the information. So we can do a huge amount in terms of scientific research as well by being able to gather data from people in places where we previously couldn't you know, do that kind of thing. Yeah, that, I mean, that's really interesting having, you know, someone, a new person being born and only being registered on a blockchain. And, you know, there are companies uh, and organizations like the Decentarian State uh, you know, other blockchain kind of companies that are using decentralized jurisdictions uh, to kind of govern people. And that's kind of being the vision of the future is a completely decentralized government. Um, yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about kind of your thoughts around that space? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very interesting area. I think it's probably so far beyond most people's understanding of the world that it's very difficult for people to get their heads around the idea of a kind of a decentralized state built on a blockchain um, and I think maybe that's one of the ideas of Decenturian is just to show rather than tell people that this could actually happen so how could we do that you know what would we need to do to to allow this to, to be created and what would be the benefits of having some kind of a decentralized state because for most people that would just be far beyond their understanding of how society operates they don't first of all understand what what cryptocurrencies are, what blockchain can do, but also, you know, the idea of a world without sort of nation states, you know, that's an idea that's been around for many hundreds of years. And it's the way we've organized our societies up to now. And it maybe has its problems and it's breaking down in some regards in some places, but it's still the best way we know to organize society right now with all its flaws. So um, I think what's interesting about what Decenturian is trying to do is just to really show um, by doing. And I think a lot of projects tend, tend to be more telling people, you know, blockchain is revolutionary and different, but they're not necessarily showing it. So um, I think that concept is is fascinating. I don't know how it's going to play out and I don't know what the dynamics of that are, but I think it's an interesting concept. And the people behind it are very passionate about it and very um, enthusiastic about what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a, a sister podcast called Positive Feedback Loop, and we actually interviewed uh, the founder of BitNation, and also we interviewed the community manager at Democracy.Earth. So those are other two other kind of you know decentralized state blockchain companies that are being yeah. That are so being it's a, a few people are, are kind of playing in the same idea, um, mm -hmm. 
And, um, you know, I think more and more people are getting fascinated by the concept, maybe because I, I spoke about this a little bit in an event recently where I talked about that project that, um, you know, we have a problem in a way of, of trust in many aspects of our traditional institutions. Um, so, you know, whether it's the media, we don't trust because we think we've got fake news or whether it's, you know, there's a strong decline in trust for government. And actually, if government's the provider of our services, then, you know, do we trust them to actually give us the services that we've paid for through tax um, or whatever it is? And, and um, that's not just down to, I mean, not everybody's a libertarian. Some people have a strong view on, on you know, the, the role of government and it should be minimal. Um, but other people are just frustrated that the day to day their lives aren't as good as they think they could be and that, that government seems to be not providing them with a kind of good return on their investment, if you like, for the money that they're putting in. They're not getting out the services that they really want. Right. And it's it's also important to think about lots of countries like the NHS. That's a government-run organization, right? So like, if we're going to have decentralized governments, that's going to impact the way healthcare is, is treated and how people are being uh, taken care of in, in a sense of um, what treatments they have available to them and what the government's going to pay for. So mm. it's interest. I'm really interested to see how the healthcare industry and blockchain and the government side of blockchain will kind of interact with each other in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I've thought about a lot because I did come from this public policy background where I was doing a lot of work with people in government trying to sort of change how policy is organised quite a bit around healthcare, but also in other areas. And you know, governments actually full of some pretty nice good people you know they're not all bad people um but they have to go through processes they have to be democratic they have to be accountable for what they're doing and they have to work in a certain way which means things can't always happen as fast as you want or in the, the you know there's no perfect answer to things you have to take the least worst option in many cases to try and get things done um but then there's this sort of huge gaping chasm between that and a, a kind of global economy of capitalism that runs very very quickly and where people can sort of almost be kind of quite spoilt and get what they want, you know, with a click of a button very instantaneously. Um, and so I think what we're grappling with certainly in healthcare is is that yawning chasm between the, the slow moving governments and the decision making that gets done there and then the fast moving technology. And we've got to find a way to bring those two things closer together. Uh, and I think that the advent of blockchain might help us to do that a little bit more effectively. I don't think that we're necessarily going to go to a kind of decentralized blockchain healthcare system you know, anytime soon. But I think that there are elements of what blockchain can do that could actually help governments deliver services more effectively in the short term um, and in the longer term as well. Um, and that, you know, governments are getting quite interested in this. There's over 100, probably more now, government blockchain healthcare projects around the world. And I'm doing it, a project at the moment. We're trying to kind of map out what's been going on and how successful they've been. Um, and one of the, I think, interests is Governments know that their citizens are not happy with what they're doing and they're frustrated with the services that they offer because government employees at the end of the day are also citizens and they also struggle with the same things. You know, they have to go to the post office and take a paper document to go and prove their identity when they want to get a driving license or, you know, some other service from the government. Um, so, you know, we all face the same kind of um, hassle and bureaucracy. And yet there's not always a good way to kind of fix it that that seems apparent and seems to, to meet the criteria that people expect um, from their services. So um, it seems ironic in a way, because, you know, the whole slogan of Bitcoin was money without government. So now I'm talking about governments using blockchain as a way to kind of deliver services. But I think that, that in a way it's not paradoxical because what that kind of Bitcoin revolution showed people was all right. There's just a different way of doing things. 
and maybe we can trust each other through the technology without needing these third parties to, to kind of verify everything. And if we can get rid of some of that third party administration, which exists a lot in healthcare, third party administration is a big part of sure. healthcare, um, then, you know, that will be a, a big progress for society. Yeah, I agree. And I think that if you think about, and I don't expect blockchain to replace government anytime soon, because a lot of the policies that are created, if you think about just GDPR, that's not something that would have just occurred naturally, potentially. I mean, I think that people would want it, but someone has to actually put it on paper and mm. implement it and enforce it. So there still requires this level of government, I think, um, for we're going to need them for a while um, until our you know AI bots will be able to create policies for us that are most optimal for our survival. Mm. <laughs> um, I think the governance part is interesting because if you look at, blockchain you know longer term what what are the issues that we struggle with um it comes down to how you set the rules of the system and obviously the system sets its own rules but you still have things that go wrong you know you have a hard fork you have people losing money you have technological hitches which people don't anticipate because ultimately technology is still written by the humans and we can make mistakes um and the you know the the things that we create are, are only as human as we are so um you know, however much we go forward, we're going to need governance mechanisms. They might end up being decentralized technology governance mechanisms, but there's still going to be rules for how systems work. And that's really all a government is, is a set of rules for how we're going to govern society. And at the moment we do that through, you know, people sitting in government ministries and in physical offices. Um, and maybe some of those processes will be done through technology in the future, but we still kind of have to set the rules that allow the system to be fair and, and protect people when something goes wrong. Right, and, and you're right. Right now, a lot of mostly humans do programming. It's not the other programs that are programming themselves, but that is the way of the future, or at least people are working on that kind of technology. So that's kind of where it becomes even more important because you don't want to have you know, a rogue AI bot creating policies or creating some a new blockchain system that all of a sudden people adopt and it can cause... Um, um, a disservice to humans, for for example. Mm. And I'm, I'm being a little cynical there, but um, it's just a well, this possibility, is where we start right? to get into the sort of dystopian visions, you know, that people get really frightened. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, you know, we're going into kind of Westworld sort of territory, you know, like the TV show where, right. you know, suddenly the robots are taking over and they're fighting back against the humans or whatever it is. But, you know, I think a lot of people are still just very unfamiliar with um, even the, the basic concepts of some of these technologies. You know, there's a lot of people in the world that are still not even you know, online, on the internet, um, and don't do online banking. Um, so technological change takes time to shift. Um, and obviously, we'll get to a point where everybody in the world probably is online. Um, but we're still not there yet. So I think for people to sort of understand, you know, what blockchain and cryptocurrency is, and then how it might converge, you know, you mentioned that topic of the disrupting convergence of, of blockchain and AI and other technologies. Um, that really starts to kind of frighten people because it's so many different things that they don't understand all combined together and then they just start to see this is a kind of brave new world type scenario where I just don't really know what's going on and I think everything's quite frightening and you know potentially quite scary and if you know someone can suddenly hack into my pacemaker and you know um, give me a heart attack you know with these kind of things the security of my medical device is, is not good you know then I can see some really kind of scary scenarios playing out. And that's why it's really important, I think, to, to educate people about technology, the good and the bad sides of it. Yeah, and I think blockchain, another huge use case for it is its security features, right? And I think that personally, 
AI, artificial intelligence, almost requires blockchain to exist. If you if you think about in the long term, because we're going to want to know the provenance of the, the data. Where is it originally coming from? Because we have to ensure that it is real data, um, factual and um, reliable information. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you start creating bad AI, basically. Yeah, and I heard someone AI. use this, this phrase the other day for, for blockchain, which I'd never heard before, and I thought it was quite good, um, particularly as someone who... Uh, we have a, a pet reptile at home that has a substrate in its tank, you know, sand at the bottom of the tank. And they said that blockchain was the new substrate for the global economy. So it's this kind of base layer on which everything else is placed on top. Um, and I think if you think about it like that, as a kind of new structure for how we're going to organize ourselves, uh, it might be for humanitarian goals, it might be for business goals, it might be for our governance. But, you know, maybe that there is this kind of role that we've been reaching for that we're all connected globally, but we also need to know who we're dealing with and how we're dealing with them and, and what kind of information we're sharing and what kind of activities have taken place. Um, and if we can imagine it like this kind of giant ledger of everything that's going on, um, then I think that kind of gives people more of an idea of why it might be useful rather than just thinking of it as, oh, well, I can send on my money to you, mm-hmm. which is good in and of itself, but it's not as fundamental and interesting as, as the wider concept of, of what blockchain can do for, for the world as a whole. Yeah, some people say when Bitcoin was started, that's when our history truly started to be recorded, our human history. So 2009 is when we started to record history. I found that kind of a fascinating statement. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I suppose, you know, it's it's one form of recording that is, you know, Bitcoin. Um, perhaps people who, who are new to this won't realize that, you know, the whole idea of blockchain was to kind of be able to keep track of what's going on on the Bitcoin network. And that Bitcoin was the first blockchain, if you like, so the first way of really kind of keeping this online sort of bank statement of all the transactions that have ever gone on. And you can go online and see that and go onto any sort of block explorer and see that the transactions kind of ticking away. Um you know, many of the records we've had in the past will get lost because they were paper-based. You know, we'll have fires, we'll have natural disasters, we'll have things that will get rid of our paper-based records. Or even, you know, when I was growing up, you had photos that you printed out, you know. Um, and now all photos are digital. So, you know, the way we record what's going on in society is changing. Um, and we need a mechanism for, for managing that. And maybe it won't be blockchain, maybe it'll be something else because actually our, our requirements will become too big for the technology to support. But this seems to be certainly a way of moving us towards um, fixing some of these problems that we had where we had lack of financial transparency in the, in the kind of global financial system, which was the whole sort of um, impetus, if you like, or one of the you know um, driving forces behind Bitcoin that, that people were unhappy that this um, financial crash took, took place and people were just not aware of all the stuff that was going on and the complexity of the kind of financial instruments that were being built and, and resold many many times um in a, a way that wasn't you know right and that le- led a lot of people to a real um you know financial destruction and, and you know some awful stories you can read of, of what happened to people as a result of that yeah i think ethics is going to play a huge role in blockchain and the transparency of information is going to bring it a new age i think potentially um looking yeah. forward to that yeah i mean it's it's, it's obviously transparency most people would say it's a good thing, but transparency can also be um, very threatening um, because it disrupts the way some people want to, to organize things. Um, and um, 
you know, if you look at something like elections, it can actually be a kind of life or death thing if you're in a country where there's, um, you know, political instability and you're, you're monitoring the election results. It can actually lead to, you know, some really quite scary outcomes um, for society where you're trying to do something good, but also there's there's a political impact on that and, and people don't want that transparency. They don't want to know because they, they would like things to carry on the way they were before and the old power structure that was there. Um, so, yeah, the, this will, you know, kind of lead to huge impact um, on all kinds of things. Uh, voting is another interesting area that I've, I've been writing about lately. Have you changed your mind on anything recently and what made you change it? Anything blockchain related or anything in general? Anything in general I'm interested in, but also like in, in the blockchain space? Um, or healthcare space? I think, yeah, I think there's a few things. I think initially I was very keen on the idea of um, individual patient records because it's something that I, I worked on in my policy days and it's something I care about personally. I would like to own my own healthcare data. Um, and I still think it's a worthy goal. I think we're a long way from public adoption of that. I don't think for the average patient, they really, um, even if they might want to, they're not really ready for the idea of owning their own data. They don't really see the value or how it could be done. So I think there's a huge education role to be done in terms of that. And I think probably most of the successful blockchain projects are going to be more business to business than business to consumer to start with. So having been very sort of evangelical about that, I think as I've learned more and more, I've become a little bit more um, skeptical on the idea of, of the individual kind of patient records. Um, and in terms of blockchain more generally, I just think you know, every year I've been involved, people have been sort of saying blockchain is going to go mainstream, you know, next year. You know, so first of all, it was Bitcoin's going to go mainstream. Then we only ever talked about blockchain because people sort of got put off the idea of Bitcoin for various reasons, you know, and people also started to understand that there were applications of blockchain that weren't just to do with Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrency. Um, you know, now we've got a lot of discussion about kind of institutional investment coming in. Um, but that's still really, really early stage. Um, and I'm just not sure that... Um, this is yet the mainstream. I think we're still kind of teetering around lots of issues to do with how we actually structure that, uh, whether it's custody of funds or, you know, forensics being able to track what happens when things go wrong. Um, I think we're just still at a really early stage. So even though things have progressed a lot, um, I'd probably, despite being hugely supportive of the tech and hugely optimistic, I think that you know, it would be overreaching to say we've, we've gone mainstream yet. I think, you know, my company probably wouldn't exist if it was mainstream because everybody would already be using blockchain and, and you know, knowing what it was. And, and so good for me, I guess, that it hasn't gone mainstream yet. But, um, you know, we're still kind of in that stage of just um, a really nascent technology. And for the technologists themselves, they're still arguing about many things about how we can get blockchains to work with each other and interoperate, how we can solve some of these issues around institutional funding and what types of tokens there are and whether those tokens are regulated one way or another. So there are many, many kind of barriers to, to getting this off the ground in a, in a more broad sense. Yeah, and scalability is another one of those issues that uh, uh, technologists are always um, discussing, working on. So yeah. we have a long I mean, way to you go. Know, when when um, Ethereum was first launched, you know, there was a lot of talk about Ethereum and people sort of so excited about it but it was kind of like the emperor's new clothes no one really knew what it was you know and people would sort of talk that it's going to be this global world supercomputer you know and um ethereum is a fantastic technology and it's already achieved a lot and you know obviously the launch of different types of tokens is, is you know one of the major things that's been um 
very very interesting over the last you know 18 months or so um but still as you say scaling is a, is a big issue for the kind of public blockchains but also there are issues around kind of how uh private blockchains work and how you know those are going to evolve as well so we're still at that kind of real inflection point i think where it's just not completely clear you know if there's going to be a sort of obvious winner in terms of the technology mm-hmm. uh, and we've got new generation technologies coming along as well different types of kind of distributed systems that are not necessarily blockchains but that can do some of the things that blockchains can do but faster um but all of those things are still you know kind of launching out and coming out stealth mode and being tested in the wild do you think that bitcoin will remain in the number one position in like five years it's very hard to say i mean I don't really like making predictions because, you know, you end up making a fool of yourself. Um, and I'm not a technologist myself. I'm not a programmer. So I'm probably not the best person to ask. But I think, you know, Bitcoin has held up pretty well in terms of um, security. You know, um, it's still the largest Bitcoin. Uh, that's still it's the largest blockchain, rather, I should say. Um, you know, it hasn't been hacked. Um, it still has the largest kind of market cap of all the cryptocurrencies. You know, it's it's the most prevalent if you like and robust of the blockchains that we have um so i think bitcoin has a future i think the the big question will be um you know partly scalability and also can kind of bitcoin break out from being really still used mostly among people who are more tech savvy or younger into kind of a more mainstream usage and although that's evolved enormously it's still you know really on the margins of society as a whole if it's not too personal, um, what would you consider to be your biggest mistake? <laughs> ah, that's a hard one. Um, I think, actually, interestingly, working in public policy, uh, though I very much enjoyed it and um, I spent a lot of my life doing it, and one of the reasons I made a career change was because I was frustrated with how slowly things move. Um, and, you know, in healthcare, you spend a very long time trying to get kind of policy reform done um, by producing a lot of reports and doing a lot of events and talking to a lot of people. Um, but you're also at the mercy of, you know, four year election cycle. So when I look back to that 15 years, I think, gosh, so much work went in, but actually it was hard to see practically, you know, more than a few things that were really achieved. Um, so in, in many ways, I wish I'd got into technology earlier because I really enjoy being around the innovators and the doers. And um, yeah, I would, probably have wished that I'd known about some of this technology earlier than I did because I, I felt almost like I was playing catch up when I got started and that was four or five years ago um, uh, and there were people that had been involved in it you know for many kind of years before that even before Bitcoin but sort of understanding you know how you could try and create a sort of digital cash system was, was being explored long before Bitcoin so I guess I just feel like that was maybe wasted time um and i would like to have had longer um and i'm sure there are many other mistakes i've made but probably not ones that i want to put onto the uh, public sure. record <laughs> yeah i'm sure like your experience of you know policy was actually it's helping drive some of the you know insights you have now so um yeah i mean yeah. the good part of that is is there are policy issues that that arise now and i do get involved in that you mentioned my work with distributed ledger foundation and with other foundations and um yeah, it gives me a different insight maybe into this, which some people don't have in in the very worthy pursuit of the tech and the kind of, there is an evangelism that comes with that, um, that people are not, not always um, realistic about how hard it is to actually um, 
educate people in public life because they're very, very busy people and they don't have a lot of time to spend on technology. So just being realistic about what can be done and how long it's going to take, uh, I guess that's something I took away from, from that time. And hopefully I can use that to, to bring blockchain into the minds of people who work in, in different governments around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, we covered a lot today in this episode. Um, is there anything additionally you'd like to you know, leave with the audience? Um, I think if there's one thing I want to leave, it's just, you know, if you're new to this, read up and explore, find people that you trust in the industry that you can learn from. I learned a lot from talking to people in person as well as reading and, and watching things online and so on. Um, and um, just think about maybe just one example where you think this could be relevant to you and dig into that because it's a huge topic and it can become overwhelming. You know, there's something you can read every single day um, about this topic and you can go down another kind of little side route or sort of rabbit hole where you dig into something so maybe just pick one niche or one area where you're interested and it might be a niche within a niche it might not just be blockchain and healthcare it might be just one aspect of that because there's a lot to be done but try and find some way to connect this into what you're doing and see if you can involve yourself in it because i think there's a lot of you know both merit for society but also individual opportunities where there's going to be new careers created out of this and there's going to be new things that people have built their own companies or, or work for other people's companies so it's been for me a fascinating journey and how i've changed my career uh, and I'd, I'd like other people to to benefit from that so i hope a lot of people will get inspired in the way i did helen thank you very much for this conversation everybody um for all my audience members in the uk or in london please check out uh, healthcare Unblocked. It's on November 9th. Um, I'll put some links in the show notes. So, Helen, thanks again. Appreciate the time. Thanks so much. And I really enjoy what you're doing. And I hope people will also carry on listening to the podcast and following up on what all the other healthcare companies in the space are doing. Hey, y'all, you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.